Hello and welcome to another episode of Cam's Corp's Our Stories. A warning at the start of this podcast that it features content only suitable for adults and contains descriptions of abuse which some listeners may find upsetting. Today we are joined by Janet Cameron, who is being supported during the interview by the officer who investigated her case. Janet is a survivor of historical sexual abuse who has bravely waived her anonymity and spoken out on her battle for justice, 32 years after being raped and being told by police there was nothing that could be done. We're here today to talk about quite a few different things, but I guess it would be helpful if people know your story. Start from the very beginning of how I was at 17, 16, I met Colin. At uh, 17, I got engaged. I got married to him at a week after I was 18. In those days, I didn't realize what grooming was because you didn't have Facebook, you didn't have, you know, the television and stuff like that. Then I'd already been hit by him when I was engaged to him, but by that time I was already thinking he was the one and everything. And then after we were married, um, the beatings got worse and the controlling got worse. I wasn't allowed to uh, answer the telephone. My mum was never allowed around the house. It was like one day when I cooked the Sunday dinner, I told you about this, yeah. And uh, because I cooked the wrong Sunday dinner, the roast beef, I shouldn't have cooked the roast beef, he threw everything all over the living room and went out and uh, went to the pub and quite blatantly told everybody that he'd just given me something to think about and that everybody was scared of him, absolutely petrified of him. So there was nothing I could do, nobody to help me. So then I had Claire, my first baby, and that is one of the beatings that I really got was um, when I was 12 weeks pregnant. I'd been out with my mum and my sister, and my sister was staying with us, and we came back from being out at a folk night out, and it was at a pub, and everything just kicked off. He kicked the glass table all over us because I was half an hour late and my mum should have brought me home. And I was 12 weeks pregnant. My sister went to the phone box, rang my mum. She picked, they picked her up. They begged me to go, but I was too scared to go because I knew he would follow and they would be in danger. So I stayed. And that's when um, I got beaten, beaten very, very badly with steel toe cap boots trying to kick me in the stomach and everything, rip my clothes off. And he actually did go down to my mum's house and smash their window in. I tried to ring them to warn them. He was on the way. And then he came back and then I managed to run out the house. And I, and I rang my mum and said, no, you have to pick me up. And at one o'clock in the morning... I was down at the doctor's surgery seeing if the baby was all right, as it was the baby was all right. I had Claire, and then she was rushed to Great Ormond Street Hospital, and she died at 10 days old. When we were on our way down there, because we were at home, he popped into his mum's and said and told me I had to stop crying, otherwise he wasn't going to take me to see her. So it's I always learned not to cry to hide everything, stop crying. So I stopped crying and I had to act normal. Went to the hospital. She made, shut down all the machines and she died in my arms. And the worst thing of that is, is that they cleaned her all up, put her in a bed 
and gave her a little yellow flower to hold. And then the nurse came in and said, right, you can go and see her to say goodbye. And uh, I was told, no, we're not going in. No, you won't leave her. You'll start crying again. And I was like, no, I won't. No, I won't. I just want to say goodbye. No, we had to leave the hospital. And all I had was a tiny little Polaroid photograph of her. And he still managed to keep that. I never, I never have got that back. So that is, that's it. And then what the cruelest thing, what he did then was said, oh, we're going to pop in and see my sister. And uh, she'd just had a baby. And so I walked in to a baby in a bouncer in a bedroom after my daughter's just died. So, yeah. So that's the control. That is control, you know, that he has had over me then. There was other, there was other beatings and, you know, being kicked and everything like that and controlling of like, I had a pair of sandals, my only sandals, and he wouldn't let me go and buy any more shoes. And they were held together with sellotape. <laughs> so, you know, and, but you just learn to live with it because you try to get help. And nowadays, if you go to the doctor, they won't even let you leave that doctor's surgery without phoning the police or social services and getting you out. But in those days, right, he was my husband and he was allowed to do what he wanted to me. There was no law for against your husband. So that is how it was. And I had to live with that, deal with that. I had Chloe uh, and uh, then Chloe was one years old. Colin and I had split up and uh, I'd managed to like leave and get away and that and I had Chloe like at my mum's and uh, one day he asked me and said I want to meet up with you at the pub at Greystones at the pub and I want to talk about Chloe so we talked we went in and I always remember it, there was a carpet sale on in those days they did carpet sales and we went into the pub and then I said I need to go home now I'm going home and uh, he said, I'll drive you. And I said, no, no, it's fine. It's okay. I'll, I'll walk. I'll walk. And he went, no, I'll drive you. Right? And he started to get angry, and I knew what was going to be coming, and that would be very embarrassing in front of everybody in the pub, you know. So I knew to keep calm, say, okay, all right, okay. So stupidly, I got in the car, and instead of turning left, to go down to my mum's, he turned right and sped off like a bat out of hell all around the country roads, locked the car, leaned over, locked the car, and then said, if you try if you try to escape, he said, you'll kill yourself. And I knew if I tried to open the door and jump out, I would have, I would have been dead. And he drove, and uh, he was driving and driving and took us to near, um, is it, uh, Orton Bromswell, to this clearing on these crossroads I always remember and that's where I was right because I knew I had to do what he told me to do and everything I won't go into details and that's where I was raped and the only way I could think about getting out of it was by saying I need to go to the toilet because I knew the pub was close I need to go to the toilet so he said go in in the trees and I said no it's dark I don't, you know, I don't like the dark. No, I don't want to. I said, well, there's a pub 
up the road, can we just go up there so I can go to the toilet? And so we pulled in and then I said to him, I need to ring my mum. My mum's got Chloe. I said, she's going to be wondering where I am. And this was my trying to get out, trying to get contact with people. So um, he let me like ring my mum, but he was standing in the phone box right beside me listening in. And he said, tell your mum we've got back together. So my mum's on the phone. And I said, Mum, I've got back together with Colin. All she could do was go, oh, no, oh, no, Janet, what are you doing, what are you doing? And uh, she wasn't even thinking, and she still to this day cannot remember me saying, help. And that's when he shut the phone down. And he went, don't ever do that again. He says, no one's coming to help you. He says, I'm going to keep you for a few days. He says, and then I'm going to decide what I'm going to do with you. So I knew. I knew there and then, this is it, this is, this is it. I, you know, in his eyes, everything, his just whole demeanor, everything, this, this is totally, totally it. Right, I'm on my own here. I've got to, I'm, I'm got to escape or I'm dead. Right, so I knew, I knew it. So I said, I still need the toilet. I'm trying to think, 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 you know. And so... We went into the pub and he made sure where the bar was that we sat here. And I'm sure he, I'm sure he sat there so we could see the door and I had to sit there. And then, um, he said, you can go up and get a drink. And then he wanted to go and get some cigarettes and they were by the front door. And I know at that time they were sure there was a machine by the front door. So I made the move to go to the bar. And I stood at the bar and I went, please find the police, please find the police. And the bar went, when there's a phone box over the road. And then at that time, Colin came straight in going, what's going on? Nothing, nothing, nothing's going on, nothing's going on. What do you want to drink? What do you want to drink? And the barman's looking at me like I'm crazy. You know, there's this young 20-year-old girl there, nearly 21, you know, like in an absolute, they must have seen that. I was petrified, absolutely petrified. But in those days, people just didn't know all about about this. And uh, I think the pub landlord can remember all of this, can't he? So, yeah, he gave a statement, didn't he? Yeah. So what happened was is we went back down to sit and have our drink. And then I thought, right, this is this is it. I've this is I've got to make my move. So what I did is I left my handbag there. Just because if I took my handbag with me, that would have given a signal. So I left my handbag and I said, I need to go to the toilet. And he went, on you go. He said, it's fine. He said, uh, I've checked all the toilets. There's the only door out here is there. There's no way you can get out of the toilets. He said, so on you go. Right. So my only way of escape was as I got around to the side of the bar, the toilets were down the corridor there. I went on my hands and knees and I crawled behind the barman, behind the bar, stood up and ran. I think I ran through a kitchen, ran out a back door and there was a car there. Tried the door handles and it opened, got in the car, slammed all everything down and hid in the back stair, in the back footwell and just hid. And that just absolutely hid the next minute. 
there's banging on the windows. What's going on? What's going on? And I was just petrified. Then all I heard was the screeching of a car on gravel and everything and just screeching away. And then this guy saying to me, he's gone, he's gone. And then I got out of the car and they took me upstairs because I was just in shock, absolute shock. And that's when like, I went, I went home and that was it. And then um, I was like, didn't know what to do. Who's going to believe me? I've already been to the doctors about beatings, everything. Um, so I just had a bath and that was it. I, you know, and I had to keep it to myself. And then I think it was about three weeks later. It was April the 13th. It was her 17th birthday. And Leanne's mum and dad were really good friends of ours. And we used to go for Sunday dinner and everything. And I used to help her with the horses and everything. And it was the next day I was walking up the road and somebody said, Leanne's missing. I said, what? Leanne's missing. The next thing I had the police at the door saying, Leanne's missing. And I was like, oh, my God. And they said, Colin is the last person to be seen with her. And I went, oh, no, no. And I just knew. And I went, she's going to be dead. I said, if she's not dead, he's keeping her somewhere. And that's when I told them what happened to me. I said, this was, should have been me. I said, if it was me, I said, she'd still be alive. It should have been, it should have been me, you know. So I've lived with that guilt for all these all these years. So I gave statements and everything to the police and <sighs> told, sorry, we can't do anything about it because he's your husband. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so, so I did give all my statements. Two policemen came, took all my statements, everything. I, I apparently gave four statements, didn't I? Because you block everything out. I can only remember giving one full, full statement. But now when I'm told things come back, they do come back to you. You know, when the police come back again to you and ask you questions and everything. So, so yeah, so, um, and um, police came down to me and said, um, she's still missing. And he said, um, we've been up to the house. And I went, oh. I said, he'll be so cool, calm and collected. I said, he could do something right in front of you and make you think that he didn't do it. You'll actually believe he didn't do it, even though he did it right in front of you. And, and this policeman said to me, don't worry, Janet. He was a bit too cool, calm and collected. I went, he's got her. He's, if he was the last person seen with her, he says, well, we know he was the last person seen with her because he was seen in the pub with her that night. He was seen in the, the pub with her and it was her birthday and she didn't look very happy. She was 17 years old, for God's sake. It was her 17th birthday. And then I think the next day, that's when he disappeared. Totally disappeared off the face of the earth. Um, and eventually it was an off-duty policeman in Guildford saw him in a car and then gave they gave chase 
And apparently it was a high-speed chase all around Guildford. And when he got caught, he went, ah, oh, he says, if I'd had my gun, this would have been a different, different matter. So he was admitting to having a gun. I knew he had a gun, but he told me it was broken. It was just, that was just, you know, he just had it there. I didn't realize. And I've just believed what, obviously what, what you told, you know, I'm not going to rock the boat to get another beating. So, so yeah, that was seven days later, I think it was, after she'd been missing and he drove and, uh, he drove them to where he'd dumped his body up near home and pointed it out and that was it and then I woke up on my 21st birthday and put the telly on and there was him being taken into Huntingdon Old Court under a blanket and everything so that was my 21st birthday and my birthdays aren't good anyway because my dad died on my seventh birthday so my birthdays are no no luck for me I hate my birthdays <laughs> so yeah and what was the result at court with Leanne with Leanne um, he tried to plead not, he was pleading not guilty and everything. And, but he was, he was certified as, he, he was like, uh, they said like schizophrenic. I can't remember the other word. I can't remember the other words. All I know, I remember the judge saying, you're not mad. Cause he tried to pull off that he was, that he was crazy trying to get the, he said, you're not mad. He said, you are just bad and you need, you need to go away. And he got um, life in life in prison, but in prison he still tried to. Well, he tried to escape. There was all escape plans and everything. He was going to escape, and then after thirty-two years in two thousand and eighteen, he got out on on parole, didn't he? And I uh, was given the phone call and got out on parole. And once again, I told my story to this lovely police lady and said yeah he shouldn't be out he's gonna do it to somebody else he did it to me but what he did to Leanne and she said what do you mean he did it to you and I said well I gave all my statements and everything and that's when she I said but nothing can be done because he was my husband and she said no Janet no Janet this can't something can be done the laws changed something can be done and that's when we started our two-year ups and downs and ups and downs and me totally up and down and not knowing where I was, whether I was coming or going, still trying to hold down a job full time, trying not to show people at work how it was affecting me, my confidence. I was a nervous wreck. I mean, I used to feel sick going into work. I knew I was doing phone calls, interviews, trying to keep that sort of away from work, not get into trouble at work for being on the phone and because they didn't understand what this meant to me. This is such a big thing and what it means to do this. And it is, it was so, so hard, but you were, you were totally by my side. And at least once a week, you would say to me, Janet, we can stop this. We can stop this. And I went, no, no. I said, I don't care how hard it gets. I do not care if we can get justice and I can get justice right? I said, this is what I want to do. So we had to do all this on the quiet while he was on parole, didn't, didn't we? And we were trying to, we did it all on the quiet while he was on parole. No, not letting him get an income because we don't know what he would have done to me. That was hard work, going back through, going to do the video interviews with you. 
that opened up boxes and boxes and boxes that I had literally myself blocked away in the back of my brain. I mean, I was still what people call jumpy Janet, you know, and like somebody would just lift a hand and I still do it to this day, but not as bad, not as bad now. And I also, if you notice, I don't say sorry every other word. I don't have to say sorry to anybody, right? And that's all I ever used to say was, sorry, 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 because I always felt I had to apologize for myself. If I'd walked into a lamppost, I'd say sorry to the lamppost. <laughs> so it's, um, but yeah, so we did, all, we did all that. That was really hard. That was really, really hard to open all those boxes and come out. But then you did all the hard work. You found all the statements, my medical records I released to you, all my medical records. You said, Janet, your medical records are absolutely brilliant because it's amazing what the doctors write once you leave that room. I've never seen them. I don't actually want to go back. and I don't want to go back and see them and all the injuries and everything because remember that, that last time when I managed to leave was one of the worst times where when he got the telephone wire and everything to go around my neck and bashed my head off the wall that hard that it actually felt like my head was hitting a pillow and I had all the strangulation marks round and the one thing I feel guilty about is I tried to escape and I ran out the back door but now when I think about it I left Chloe upstairs in her cot asleep but just self-preservation comes over you because if I'm not there who's she going to have and then he carried me in and said you're never leaving me and then the next day the health visitor came round and I I'd forgotten that I'd missed an appointment. He'd gone out the back door to go on his bike. She pulled up as he'd gone out the back. She was walking up the pathway through the front door as he came round the corner. He saw her coming up. He about turned. As I opened the door, he barged in the back door. What's going on? What do you want? And then she saw the fear in me, she said, and she saw the marks on my neck and she thought quick on her feet and she went oh hello Colin I'm just here to say to Janet that she um forgot her appointment with Chloe at, um for a health check Janet can you come down tomorrow you know and he went I'll bring her down so he took me down he was in the waiting room I pretended to take Chloe in and that's when the doctors I had to strip off really quick all the bruises everything Everything was recorded and then the nurse came and knocked on the door and went, you need to hurry up, he's getting restless, I think he's going to come and barge in. So it was me quickly getting dressed and I had to go back home with him. And then I rang her and said, I want to leave. She went, right, I'm ringing the police. And she rang the police and everything. But they were up the road. I was down the road. They couldn't see the house. I... He went out and said, I've got to pop out. And I took this as, I've got to go now. I grabbed Chloe, ran over to my friend's house, whose cottage is next to the pub, barged in there to Jane and said, right. I said, I've left, I've left. I said, I don't know where the police are or anything. And he came back and he then apparently was running around. I didn't see it. 
was running around the village with a crossbow, going into the shops, going into the pub with his crossbow in his hand and eventually came to Jane's and he's like, I want to speak to Janet, I want to speak to Janet. And she, she was like, she's not here, she's not here. And that's when he started smashing all the windows. And her little boy was running around, I think he was three or four at the time. Chloe was, she was just a year old and the people in the pub heard the commotion. And what I did is I went and hid in a gas cupboard in a toilet. And then I heard this banging on a toilet window going, Janet, Janet. And I literally saw these hands. I opened, saw these hands through the window and I just passed. I didn't even know who I was handing Chloe to. I just passed Chloe straight to these hands and they jumped the fence. They went into the pub while he was occupied smashing windows trying to get to me. They drove, they drove Chloe just out of the village and took her away. And then that's when the police came and Elaine, um, not Elaine, Pauline came, a health visitor. Um, and then it was just all a whirlwind. And then the police came to me and said, right, We've, we've took him away. He's in the cells. Um, we're keeping him overnight to let him calm down. You can get whatever you want out the house to leave. Not we're going to charge him. We're going to do this. We're going to do that because he was my husband. He was classed as a man of the house. I had to, I had to leave. So I had to get cots down, everything. And I left and that was it. And then that was when the rape happened two weeks later. And then that's when, um, the got murdered. I suppose it was a different experience with the police back in the 80s. How did you find it this time around? Absolutely, absolutely amazing. And don't get me wrong, I think I know because I think you told me that the policemen who took my statements, they did it in so much detail and so professionally, even though they knew they couldn't do anything. I think maybe hoping in years' time, like what happened, the law can change. And I just want to say to people out there, if there's any, any women or men, because men are abused as well, right? If you were raped, beaten, abused in any way, and you managed to go to your doctors and your doctors wrote it down, that's all you need. All you need. Or you managed to, the police came to your house. It will be recorded. It will be recorded in, in archives somewhere if it takes the police that they've got to go down to London like you and go through the archives then that's what that's what they will do because that's what you did you had one day didn't you you had one day that's all you were allowed to go down and trawl through everything and then you found it you found it you got it and um yeah and the video interviews just in case people don't know what do they involve that yeah, that I did with you, that involves, first of all, making you feel comfortable, nice cup of coffee, yeah. You let me go out for a ciggy and explaining the room. And it's a nice comfy sofa and just explaining the room where the microphones are, where the cameras are, because I think there was a couple of cameras in there. And I know there was a couple of microphones and that I could say stop at any time. And that you showed me the room next door where it was, the screens were, where it was all recorded. So totally, totally different, relaxed. I knew I could stop it at any point. I was, I was in control, so I could stop it 
at any time I wanted to, but I just wanted to do it. I had that that gut in me, and that felt like I'm not a strong person, but you know this has given me strength, and this this is why I want to do this because I want to help other people. I want them to pick up the phone, right? Or if they can't pick up the phone, just go to the doctor or go to somebody at work. Just talk to somebody. Talk to somebody and somebody else will take on that and know what to do if you don't know what to do yourself. In a lot of places at work, HR people nowadays are trained in seeing differences in people and that um and they are trained not highly trained but trained so if you have a hr department in your work and that's where you're away from your abusive partner because they know you're at work and they know where you are you go there you ask for help ask somebody for help and you will get help there and then you won't be like sent home or whatever unless you say well i've reported it and I, I want to see what I'm going to go back, but but if it's a historical, if you're still with this person, you know it could still be going on in a different kind of abuse, in a different way, you know it's it's verbal abuse. It's my abuse was verbal. My abuse was taking all my rights away. I wasn't allowed to do anything. All my rights were taken away. You know, even answering the door or when my mum used to ring, I'd say, oh, who was that? Because he would answer the phone. Oh, just told her you weren't here. Some people are concerned as well that once they report to police, they're left in the dark and don't know what's going on. What was your experience? No, I was kept in in the loop by you all the time. Although, because mine can be different because I'm not living with the person. but you will always find a way of contacting that person without the partner or the abuser being there, whether it be at work or through a friend, you know, or a parent. Whereas if it's a certain day you go to visit your mum and your dad, you know, you can you can um, get a, a diary of the, the times and days where you know you know you're going to be on your own where you know and that's when you will accommodate them. They don't have to accommodate you. I didn't have to accommodate you. You accommodated me, you know. And if I said, oh, I can't make it that day or whatever, but it is different if you are in that abusive relationship now. It's, it's, it's different. But I just want to say to anybody out there, if this happened to you, you know, all those years, it doesn't matter how many years ago, go and talk to somebody. Go and talk to somebody. Or I'm sure there's a, there's a helpline number that they can phone and you will treat them with the utmost respect, not just fob them off and they will be listened to and you can take the steps from there to actually get justice. Like what I got justice so let's talk about that what was the end result for your case the end result for my case was the cps we charged him with rape kidnap and three charges of abh yeah 
so rape, kidnap, and three charges of ABH. And he was charged with that. And I think he was absolutely shocked because the evidence laid out in front of him, there's just no way he could say not guilty. And I know, I think he said as he walked out the room, he said to the person he was with, I'm just going to have to plead guilty. By that time, you see, he'd gone against his parole conditions himself because we were going to the CPS to have him put back in prison again before we went to trial. But he got he put himself back in prison because I remember getting the phone call going, Janet is back inside because he went against all his parole conditions. And he was going to do it again because I know he was grooming a vulnerable woman. And I know he was back in with the underground people again and the drugs. So he was back inside. And then uh, we went to court, which I didn't get to face him because it was COVID. I didn't get to see him because the videos wouldn't work. But I got to hear him. But just because he changed his name by Depot to Martin Cooper, I called him and he could hear me. Colin Hill. He's not a different man, although he's Martin Cooper. He's still the same man and he's Colin Hill. And he got different sentences for each charges, but they were to run concurrent and the judge gave him seven years and he's got to serve five of those. Because he served 32 years in prison, one of the longest serving in prison, classed as one of the most dangerous men to come out. That was why he was on the MAPA meetings every month to discuss him. And I was kept in the loop with that as what was being discussed in the MAPA meetings. So that's how you kept me in the loop all the way through as well. And now if he comes up for parole, I can give a victim's statement and uh, but I don't think he's going to get out again because I think if he does get out he'll go right back he's, he had his chance one chance after 32 years to prove that he changed he's still a psychopath and that was something at court as well that you were given the chance to do a victim impact statement how did you feel about being given the opportunity to do something like that that was that was nerve-wracking because it was very difficult to know what to say you helped, I just talked and you helped me with it, but it was so hard to know what to say because I didn't want to be weak. I didn't want to sound weak to him because I knew he could hear me. And I didn't want to sound weak because then he's won, but I won and I was the strong one. I wanted him to sit there and I hope he was sitting there. I wish I could have seen his face. Still to this day, wish. I could have faced him face to face because that's what I wanted, face to face. And to actually say back to him maybe what he actually said to me one time, paybacks are a bitch, Janet. And I really wanted to say that to him, paybacks are a bitch, Colin. But I knew I wasn't allowed to in court. I wouldn't have done it. But that in my heart of hearts is what I wanted to say. But I won. And I got counselling. That helped so so much and I didn't even need the full six weeks of counselling and that and I said no I'm fine and she said Janet she said I can't believe the change in, in you 
from when I first talked to you to how you are now for everything is just lifted, totally lifted. Yeah, I'm a different person. I feel different. I've got that bit of glint in the eye again. So even though the police process was difficult, are you glad you chose to do it? Yeah. I wouldn't change a thing. I would not change a thing. I'd do it all over again, knowing how difficult it was, knowing how hard it was, knowing how like, to face people um, and still carry on my day-to-day life and try and work as well, not letting people see how much I was hurting inside, how scared I was inside, because that would have affected my job. So I had to go to work. I would break down when I came home. As you know, I think, fuck, a few phone calls. (laughs) Me in tears, you know. So I guess, what are the other things you'd like to encourage people to do if they can? I would like them to, to, to actually go and speak to somebody, right? Let people know, okay? Because somebody who's abused actually really hides it very, very, very well, right? And the person who's the abuser can be so nice, but behind closed doors, it's a different person. You never, ever know what's behind closed closed doors. And I always say, because people always looked at me and judged me by my cover, right? Because I put out Try to be strong, and I will always say, don't ever judge a book by its cover because people out there do not know what I went through, do not know how I felt day to day, do not know how I struggled with all my emotions, do not know how for two years this absolutely petrified me of trying to work trying to be upbeat for my kids and my grandchildren, not letting my grandchildren know. I mean, I've got a 16-year-old granddaughter at that time. She's 14. She's not stupid, you know, trying not to let and still carry on. So I'm just saying to people out there, never judge a book by its cover. And you also don't know what goes on behind closed doors. And if somebody comes to you, right, even if you know the abuser and think, oh, my God, oh, I don't believe that. No, they're telling lies, they're telling lies. Because it can be a man or a woman, you know. If somebody comes to you, please help and please listen. Just listen. And and I'm saying to them, if you go, go to the police, the police will come to you where it's safe for you. They will not come knocking, just knocking on the door. Oh, uh, you've um, made a complaint. You know, they, you, you just won't do that. I know that. And uh, you'll find ways of getting in touch and hopefully start the process because there are, there are refuges out there. There are safe houses where nobody knows where they are. They will. I know it means breaking away from your family, but eventually, you know, it's the hardest thing to do. But it's the best thing to do to get out of that abuse. And that's really what I want to get over. If you've been affected by the content of this podcast, you can visit our website for more information or to report any concerns. 
And that's all for this episode of Cam's Crops Our Stories. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel so you don't miss the next instalment. Thank you for listening.